If you're new to Sovereign Grace, this is your first time here, I'd love to welcome you. Well, we will be in God's Word, of course, so you can turn now to Genesis 28. We continue in Jacob's story, starting at verse 10 in chapter 28. And we will read all the way to verse 22. And let me remind you, brothers and sisters, before we read this, let's attend to the Word of God, because this is the Word of our living God. Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat, and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a tenth, a full tenth to you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you and you alone are the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Lord, you have called us and redeemed us from the furthest corners of the earth. And now, Lord, as we gather in your name, as your blood-brought children, remembering that you are for us in Christ, we ask, Lord, that as we face the struggles and the uncertainties of this fallen world, Lord, that you would help us to remember that we do not need to be afraid. Because you are with us. We do not need to be dismayed. For you are our God. 
And you, Lord, will strengthen us. You will help us. You will uphold us with your righteous right hand. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, in the spirit of Reformation Day, which I'm sure you all celebrated this week, along with Halloween and getting all your candy, I thought I would start with a story about Martin Luther, that great reformer. In the year 1505, you might know that Martin Luther finished his master's degree at the University of Erfurt. Probably saying that wrong, but that's where he got his master's degree. And before returning to university to begin a career in law, he wanted to go home and visit his family before he got started in his career. And it was a pretty long journey, about 50 miles north. And it's not like they jumped in a bus or anything back in those days. And he made it there safely. He had a great time with his family. But on his way back, he was caught up in this terrible, terrible thunderstorm. And legend has it that he may have almost been struck by lightning, but he was definitely certain that God had brought this thunderstorm to take his life. And so he cried out to St. Anne, of all people. And if you don't know who St. Anne is, she's the patron saint of miners. His father was a miner. He owned a mine, and he probably even could have saw a statue of St. Anne as he was leaving his family home. And so this was the only mediator that Martin Luther knew. So he said, help me, help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. We all know what happened after that. He was spared from the storm. God saved his life. He returned to the university, and as soon as he got back, he gave away all of his law books. And he became an Augustinian monk in that town. And then 12 years later, he nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Germany, and the Reformation was born. Incredible story. Now, I want to recognize most of us will never start this kind of world-shaping Reformation kind of ministry like this. And I'm certain none of us have ever been caught up in a storm and vowed that we would become a monk in any way. But I am certain that almost all of us have had moments in life where God significantly redirects us, turns us around, changes the course of life, really changes our life forever. Maybe for some of you, that was just when you became saved. You were in the world and chasing after sin, chasing after the wind and, and the success of this world. And God just wrecks your life, brings you into the church. You hear the word of God, you repent, and he changes you forever. Maybe for other people, they grew up in the church and you just experienced this kind of life-changing shift with some sudden thing to happen. Maybe it's a job change or a career change or a move or an illness. That wrecks your life or wrecks your family and just puts you on a totally different path. As you pray, you think, Lord, what are you doing? Why did you redirect me like this? I had great plans to honor you, and why are you taking me in this new direction here? Well, the answer to that question is that God didn't just redirect you. He didn't just change your goals or change your dreams, what God is doing in moments like this is sanctifying us. He's transforming us. In other words, you can think of it this way. When we're really concerned about getting from point A to point B, trying to accomplish our goals, God is concerned with changing us from person A, a sinner, to person B, someone that is conformed to the image of his son. 
And that's what God does with Jacob in this passage. Jacob thinks he's just on the run. He's running for his life. He's going to get a wife in some far distant land. But God has completely different purposes for Jacob. He wants to stop him and transform him by these wonderful promises of Abraham. And I hope and pray, I've been praying all week that God would do the same thing for us this morning. As he really shows us in this passage that God meets us where we are. He meets sinners where we are in many ways. But he doesn't leave us where we are. Yes, God draws near to the brokenhearted. Yes, God seeks out sinners. But he doesn't just save them from that moment. He doesn't just give them relief from the pain. No, he transforms them. Transforms us into new creations in Christ. That's what he does here with Jacob. And I want us to see that as we walk through this text. And I'll draw your attention to three parts. The first part is Jacob's exile, him leaving the land. That's in verses 10 through 11. And secondly, we'll talk about this dream, Jacob's dream here in this ladder in verses 12 through 15. And then third, the focus here is really Jacob's transformation. What does this vision do to him? In verses 16 to 22, really what the Lord does to Jacob through this vision. So let's talk about Jacob's exile. Now, you might remember, because it's been a few weeks since we've been in Genesis, the last time we saw Jacob, he was living up to his name, wasn't he? Remember, Jacob is the deceiver. He's a supplanter, the usurper. In modern times, we'd probably just call him, he's just a jerk. In Genesis 27, that's what he was. He deceives his father with his mother's help, by the way. And he blasphemes God in the process, all to steal this birthright, this blessing from his brother Esau. And this deception that just really destroyed his whole family. It rocked Isaac and Esau to their core. Isaac was trembling. Esau was weeping. And he turns and vows, I am going to kill my brother as soon as my father dies. And Rebecca, their mother, who took part in this deception, she comes up with a plan really fast to save her son. But she doesn't know that as she hatches this plan, she's also saying goodbye to her son. Because this plan will send Jacob away for 20 years and she will die before he returns. And here in the beginning of chapter 28, what we covered a couple weeks ago, Isaac introduces this plan. He tells Jacob, you're going on a mission. And he tells him, look, you're going to a faraway land, the land of your mother's family, to find a wife. And that's partially true. But remember, it's also kind of a ruse. He's hatching this plan to get Jacob away from Esau. To protect the son of promise, the one who received the blessing. I just stop and think here how hard this must have been for both Isaac and Rebekah. Remember, Isaac couldn't leave the promised land. His father Abraham said, no, I don't think so. You're the son of promise. You stay here. I will send a servant to get your wife because it's too risky to send the son of promise out of the promised land. Now, Isaac has to, to save his son's life. If he trusted in the promises of God, this had to have been killing him. And Rebecca, remember, she favored Jacob. Jacob was this homebody, loved to be around the tents with Rebecca and cook. And he, he certainly wasn't the rugged outdoorsman that Esau was. I, Esau would have loved this. Go to a faraway land, live off the land. Sounds like an adventure to Esau. But Jacob... 
From what we know about Jacob, I'll bet Rebecca was thinking, I am sending my son off to die. He's not ready for a 500-mile journey in the wild. He'll be killed or robbed before he gets anywhere close to my family. That's the state when they send them off. It gets worse. Look at how it begins. Verse 10, how his exile begins. Verse 10 says, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. Now, this is a sad development for two reasons. You may know by now, I hope you do if you've been following along in Genesis, it's always bad when God's people in the book of Genesis go east. It's always bad news. And while this destination in Haran is northeast, it's still east. Remember, Adam and Eve left the garden going east. Cain went east. Lot went east. And it seems all of God's enemies come out of the east. So it's a bad sign, a bad picture here that we see Jacob walking away from God. That's usually what that symbolizes there. Also, probably even more sad, Jacob is literally retracing Abraham's steps. You might remember, Abraham moved west. He went from Ur to Haran to Bethel to Beersheba. And then what do we see Jacob doing? Going from Beersheba to Bethel to Haran, heading towards Ur. It's almost picturing that Jacob is undoing all that his grandfather Abraham did to get them to the promised land. That's how sad this moment is. And look at verse 11. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. Because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, and he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Quite literally, he's hit rock bottom. Literally, sleeping on a stone. And I do think that Moses is kind of speaking literally and figuratively here about Jacob's situation. Literally, he's homeless, helpless, alone. He had no plans which is why he just has to stop when it got dark in the middle of nowhere. This place doesn't even have a name. No plans, no friends, no family. So little supplies he has to sleep on a rock. You think, well, at least he has the promises. At least he has the the birthright that he cheated to get. But remember, all of those promises are about the promised land. He's leaving the promised land. So even what he fought to get seems to be falling apart right now. So figuratively here, I believe even when he says the sun has set, even though it literally did set, I believe it's also describing his situation. This is describing the darkness that Jacob is in in this moment. God has taken everything from him. Every comfort, every friend, every ally is is gone, and all because of his sin. All because of his deception i feel like it's worth stopping pausing and thinking do you see what sin can do do you see the destruction that sin can cause yes there are eternal consequences for sin that are far worse but god often gives sinners a taste of hell in this life through consequences as a warning hopefully bringing us to repentance in many ways And it's a warning for us, kids especially, don't be like Jacob. Remember, Jacob, in a sense, was raised in the church. 
He knew the promises. He knew what God was about. He saw it in his father and his grandfather, but he did not trust in the God of his parents. He trusted in himself. He trusted in his own ability to deceive, to manipulate, lying, cheating, stealing, to get whatever he wants when he wants. Didn't trust in the Lord. It's a warning for us as well, adults. Don't wreck your lives with sin. I've seen it so many times. People pull away from church. They kind of go silent. They isolate themselves because they're seeking to run after this world. Chasing idols, chasing the wind. We're seeing it in church discipline right now with people we love. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's just like the prodigal in Luke 15. The prodigal who wasted his inheritance with lavish living. And where did that put him? Feeding the pigs. What a disgrace. And he's longing to be fed on the slop that the pigs were eating. Please listen to me, brothers and sisters. Sin will destroy everything you care about in this life. It will leave you like Jacob, alone and helpless, without God and without hope in the world. And if you don't repent, the wrath of God is to come. It gets worse. Brothers and sisters, learn from Jacob. Chasing after sin is never worth it. Walk in faith and repentance now while there's still time to repent. So what does God do then with a person like Jacob, with a prodigal like Jacob and like us? How does God respond to a sinner in this mess? Well, let's find out. In verse 12, we see Jacob's dream starting with a ladder. Verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold... There was a ladder, or you might see the footnote that says a stairway or steps. Now, it's probably something more like a pyramid or an ancient ziggurat. That's probably what Jacob is most familiar with, or even potentially a tower in some ways. Some kind of steps that are what? Set on the earth, on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. I can't help but think that. For you rock and roll fans, this is this is the stairway to heaven, isn't it? The true stairway to heaven. If kids, you don't get that. Ask your parents later. Maybe even your grandparents now, right? But the interesting part about this, and the reason I pointed out, it's actually not a stairway to heaven. Really what we have here with the language, it's a stairway down from heaven. It's not coming from Jacob. It's not coming up from Jacob. It's God's ladder down to Jacob. That makes all the difference in the world. Right? What is this ladder? Look what it says at the end of verse 12. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. What is that all about? You remember what angels do, don't you? Angels, quite literally, are God's messengers. That's what their name means. And they do God's work. And how do they do God's work? Well, primarily in two areas. They communicate on God's behalf. They bring God's word to God's people. And they also help God's people. They bring supplies on God's behalf. They care for them spiritually, even protecting and defending them spiritually. So what Jacob sees here on this heavenly ladder is almost like God's divine supply chain. That's what he sees. God has opened up the heavens for him to communicate with Jacob, to talk 
to this sinner to condescend and be with him. And God has angels at the ready to meet his needs. Even defend him if necessary. It's almost as if God just dropped a wartime walkie-talkie out of the heavens with God on the other line. God's saying, I know, Jacob, you have nothing. You don't even know how deep of a hole you're in, but I'm here. I'm listening. I'm watching. I'm ready to meet your needs. It's not much of a greater hope than that when you're sleeping on a rock. In the next verse, God shows Jacob what he needs most of all. See, the latter isn't just about communication and about help. It is, but it's also about revelation. God is revealing himself to Jacob. He's been promising to keep those covenant promises he made with his fathers. Look at verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Or you might see in a footnote again, beside it. I don't know what it is with the ESV. They always put the better translation in the footnotes. For some reason, but I think the better translation here is beside it. Both are okay, but it's beside it because the focus in this passage here is not on God's transcendence. It's not God at the top of the ladder in his glory and majesty. That's certainly true of God, but the focus here is that he's drawing near to Jacob. He's near him. And we have evidence of that in other texts as well, but he's close to Jacob. And what does he do? He speaks to him. He says, I am Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name, by the way, that the readers of Moses' work heard from Moses as they were heading into the promise. And what a blessing to know that the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is with them as well as he was with Jacob. The God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. That's interesting, isn't it? If you read carefully, you're probably reading that and going, wait a minute. Abraham's not Jacob's father. Isaac is his father. Did God get it wrong? Abraham's his grandfather. Has God made a mistake? The answer to that question is always no, by the way. Always no. So then what is God doing? Why is he saying Abraham is his father? Well, he's emphasizing Abraham to point to his track record. To point to his past faithfulness. He's saying, Jacob, I made a lot of promises to your grandfather. But I've also kept those promises for three generations. I've been faithful. I've led them. I've provided for them. I've blessed them far beyond what they deserve. I have been the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of your fathers. And Jacob, that's what I'll be for you. That's what he's doing by pointing to Abraham here. And then God confirms that with the promise itself. Look at the end of verse 13. The land on which you lie. I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, promise given to Abraham. And you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That is a wonderful summary of the Abrahamic covenant, isn't it? Everything we've seen in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. The land, the seed, the blessing, they're all there. And remember, Jacob has seen a lot of these promises partially fulfilled already. He's been in the land. He's seen how God has fulfilled this and blessed his grandfather and his father. And then once again, we are reminded these promises go well beyond Jacob, don't they? 
That last promise especially, it extends all the way to the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the Messiah, the one, the Savior of the world who would come and bless, as it says, all the families of the earth. We know this to be Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is the seed of Abraham, Galatians 3.16. And check this out. Now we know this Messiah, holy Savior of the world, is a father of Abraham, Isaac, and the deceiver. Think of the grace there. It's the father of Jacob. Incredible grace. And it gets even better. God narrows in on Jacob's situation and gives him three incredible promises that really help Jacob at this moment. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am with you. It's promise number one. Promise of presence. This is the great Emmanuel promise, isn't it? The promise that is repeated and cherished all the way through the Bible by God's people. This is what we lost at the Garden of Eden, and God has been restoring it ever since. And it finds its greatest fulfillment in the Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who came and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. He is God with us. In the middle of verse 15, and I will keep you wherever you go. This is promise number two, a promise of provision, of protection, of preservation. This is God saying, Jacob, I know you have nothing, but I will sustain you. I will keep you. And guess what? I will do that in the land and even out of the land. And then he says, promise number three, and I will bring you back to this land. Oh, this is such a precious promise in this moment. It's a promise of restoration, isn't it? It's God saying, Jacob, I know you think you have burned this bridge. I know you think there is no coming home again. There is no fixing what you have caused in your sin. But Jacob, I will bring you home. I will bring you home in peace, it says later. I will fix what you have broken in your sin. How do we know that? For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Would you see what incredible grace this is? Does this bother anyone? By the way, if you're paying attention, you should be ready to throw up your hands and protest at least a little bit. If you're not, you're missing the point. Someone needs to say, this is ridiculous. This is scandalous. This is so unfair and so unjust. He's a deceiver. He's a cheat. He's wrecked his whole family. He doesn't care about honoring God. No way. He's blasphemed God. He honors himself most of all. And sadly, he has almost no remorse here. He's able to sleep like a baby on a rock. No fear of judgment. Nothing. All he wanted from God was what God would give out. The blessing, the inheritance, the birthright. He didn't want God. And he thought foolishly he could obtain it with the work of his hands, with deceiving and trying to get it for himself. He tried to make a name for himself. I think in this way, he was a lot like the people in Babel who foolishly thought they could, by their own hands, build a tower to God pridefully making a name for themselves. And do you remember what happened to Genesis 11? 
God had to come down to their measly little tower, their puny efforts, and curse them, confuse their languages. Jacob has been just as foolish in his life. What he deserves is for God to come down in judgment, in wrath, in condemnation for his sin. But instead, God graciously builds a staircase, builds a tower down to the sinful man. I believe this is a direct contrast with Babel. We couldn't build our way to heaven. The only way we're getting to heaven is if God builds a tower down to us. And when he comes to meet Jacob, you'll notice he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, this serves you right. He doesn't give him the wrath. He doesn't even give him law. Say, well, you got to climb the tower yourself. you got to do these things to get back in my good graces, and then I will bless you. No, he comes and says, Jacob, you're a sinner, and let me tell you how I'm going to bless you. I will save you, Jacob. I will dwell with you, Jacob. I will protect you and provide for you. I will even restore everything that was broken in your sin. Brothers and sisters, this is the picture of the gospel, isn't it? This is exactly how God saves us. Every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. You and I are all Jacobs. We're all deceivers, liars, cheats building our name for ourselves, working our way to God foolishly by the strength of our own hands, is where has that left us? Helpless, hardened, alone, just like Jacob. But God in his infinite mercy and grace, when we were not seeking him out, he sought us out while we were sinners and dropped a ladder down to us. And that ladder's name was Jesus Christ. You heard the passage that Jason read in the beginning. It's a wonderful story about when Nathaniel meets Jesus for the first time. You remember the story, Jesus sees Nathaniel coming off and he says in John 1, 47, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And I believe that Jesus is kind of riffing off of Jacob's name here. Remember, he's the deceiver. He's looking at Nathaniel and saying, Ah, an Israelite, so unlike Jacob. That's what he's doing. And then he's going to build on the Jacob picture as he keeps going. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, how in the world do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And he wasn't even anywhere near him. So Nathanael answers him and says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Oh, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on what? The ladder, the son of man. You realize what Jesus just said there. Jesus took the story of Jacob and says, I am the ladder. I am the one that descended down to dwell among my people. I've come to obey the law that they broke to live the life that they failed to live and to go to the cross, pay for their sin and debt. People like Jacob, people like us, I will conquer sin for my sinful people and raise from the dead, conquering death. And just before I ascend to heaven, do you remember what Jesus left his disciples with? He told them to go make disciples at the end of the earth, but he said, I will be with you. I will keep you 
I will provide for you. I will protect you. And I will come back again to restore everything you've broken. This is the gospel of our living God. This is the hope we cling to, just like Jacob. The only question now is how will you respond? How will you respond to what Christ has done, the ladder that Christ is for us? How does Jacob respond to this situation? Well, let's see. We've seen his exile. We've seen his dream. Now let's look at his transformation. Transformation in verse 16. And the first thing Jacob does is worship. Look at verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. I've been blind this whole time. The Lord has been with me. He's in this place. And he was afraid, terrified, probably better translation, and said, How awesome is this place. Now when you hear awesome, don't think radical or awesome pizza. That's not what this is talking about. Awesome is bringing awe in the sense of bringing terror. It's probably better translation to say, how terrible is this place? How awful is this place in one sense? Why? This is none other. The end of verse 17. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. You realize what Jacob sees? He recognizes, finally, I am in the presence of a holy God. And I'm a sinful man. Like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 or Peter in Luke 5. He's undone. Undone in the presence of a holy God. He says like Peter, depart from me for I am a sinful man. And maybe for the first time in his whole life, he bows in worship and repentance. This is a massive moment for Jacob. It's a transformative moment for him. So he wants to remember it. So he sets up a monument. He renames this place because it's changed him so much so that he will never forget God's grace to him in this particular moment. Look at verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. Now, he's not really making an altar here. I know it seems like that, but he actually comes back here later in Genesis and builds an altar. What we see here is he's anointing, symbolizing God's presence. This is an Ebenezer. We talked about those. It's like a monument. It's a a stone of remembrance. He's saying, I'm going to come back here, and I'm going to remember when all I had was a stone for a pillow. And God promised me the whole world. God gave me an eternal inheritance. I'm coming back and I'm going to mark this place so I will never forget. In verse 19, he says, he called the name of that place Bethel. Beth house, El Elohim, God, house of God. And that moment is, is kind of like a mic drop in some ways because there was somebody else who went through Bethel on the way to out of the promised land. His grandfather, Abraham. Now, we don't know if this is the exact same place. Some commentators want to say that stone that he was laying on was the altar of his great-grandfather. I don't think we can say that. But we do know this. Somehow, he's near the place that his grandfather got the same promises from God. And God brought Abraham back to the same place to worship. And Jacob, as he goes out of the promised land for 20 years, brings him back. God brings him back in Genesis 35 to this exact place where he worships God again. 
behold the faithfulness of our God. So Jacob worships, he remembers, he then vows. Look at verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me, And will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, please don't be thrown off by the if-then statements here. A lot of commentators, I think, are terrible at this, just ragging on Jacob like crazy. But remember, just because it says an if-then, Jacob's not trying to make a deal. It's not starting to say, God, if you do all this great things for me, then guess what I'll offer you? He has nothing. Nothing to his name. And it says these are vows to begin with. God has already promised to do these things for Jacob graciously to keep his promise to his grandfather and his father. So it's better to think of this as Jacob's prayer. He's acknowledging what God has promised. He's saying, if this is all true, I don't deserve any of this. But Lord, if you plan to do this for me, if you, if you really are going to keep these promises, then I need to respond. He's filled with gratitude, and his response is three vows, a vow of devotion, dedication, and commemoration. Those are his promises. He vows his devotion at the end of verse 21. He says, the Lord shall be my God. Going from an idol worshiper to someone that worships God. I think in many ways right here, Jacob is keeping the first table of the law. Lord, you have... Put your name on me. I will not take it in vain. I will not worship those false gods. I will give my worship and my devotion to you and you alone. Then dedication, the end of verse 22, he says, this shall be God's house. I will remember this place. I'm coming back here. It's not just God's house. It's my house, my home. I'm not leaving the promised land for good. I am coming back. And I'm sure before this, he was ready to get out and never come back. But he says, I will come back and dwell with my God. And then commemoration, the end of 22. He says, of all that you will give me, I will give you a full tenth to you. And you think, well, that's kind of weak, isn't it? Tenth? That's really weak, it seems like. But remember, this is Jacob. It's a start. He's a liar. He's a cheat. He he steals to get ahead. But now look what he's recognizing. All that you give me, everything is gift. Everything is gift. And so I'm going to give a tenth to you. I think what Jacob's doing here is he's walking in the steps of his grandfather. Remember when Abraham came back with the spoils of war and he meets this priest king, Melchizedek. What does he do? He gives to God a tenth of all that he's given him. This is Jacob walking in faithfulness, saying, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, which is a big deal for Jacob. Clearly, this is a changed man. He left home a stubborn sinner, helpless, homeless, on the run for his life, going from point A, the promised land, to point B, somewhere far off to get a wife. And God stopped him in his tracks and said, you're mine. You're mine. 
I'm not just going to redirect you. I'm not just going to change the course of your life and change your goals. I'm going to transform you, Jacob, from person A, a sinner, a deceiver, into a child of God, a saint of the living God. Brothers and sisters, this is what our God wants to do for us as well. This promise to do for us if we trust Him. Like I said before, God meets us where we are, but He doesn't leave us where we are. A lot of people think, oh yes, God meets us where we are, and that's just fine. That's all we need, right? God just is like, oh, you're such a mess. So adorable and cute. Yeah, you're a mess, and they'll just leave you where you are. That's not our God. He calls us out of sin and darkness. He transforms us by the power of his spirit. And how does he do that? Through the spirit? He does that by calling us into his presence like he does with Jacob. Do you realize this morning you are in Bethel? You are in the house of God right now. How do we know that? Because God welcomes us. He's the first one to speak in the service. He calls us to himself and calls us to worship. He shows us our guilt through his law. He reminds us of his grace and his promises in the gospel. He even gives us a picture. He gives us a ladder right here at the Lord's table that we'll see in a minute. And he leaves us with a blessing, a benediction to undeserving sinners like us. God is here in this place. We are experiencing what Jacob is experiencing in corporate worship right now. So the question for all of us is, how will you respond? How will you respond? Will you harden your hearts, stubbornly close your ears and walk out that door just as lost and as hardened and helpless as when you came in? Notice there's only two results when people come into the presence of God. Sanctification and hardening and judgment. Which path are you going to take today? Will the kindness of the Lord lead you to repentance? Will the gospel that you see here today call you to say with Jacob, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. He has kept his word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Blessed a sinner like me through his son, the seed of Abraham, to save me from his sins. So I am his. And I vow to lay my life down for my king. I will remember Christ's faithfulness. And I will continue to worship him. As we will later sing, praising God, saying, Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto Heavenly Father, you are incredibly faithful. And we realize, Lord, our debt, our sin, our depravity, and even our foolish attempts to dig out of the hole that we put ourselves in. We are so thankful, Father, that in your Son you have dropped us a ladder. Christ has come to live and die in our place, to raise us from the dead, to lift us from the dead to be with you and commune with you. And Lord, we know one day we will be with you forever. And we know that you've promised to never leave us or forsake us until you see those promises through.
Father, we rejoice. We rejoice as your people, and we praise your great name this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.